It's Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. In episode 101, we talk about the value of being exposed to opinions different from ours. As more people continue to jump on the clubhouse bandwagon, people share their perspectives. More on Facebook, math scare of the past, and more. Mosin at Large Podcast. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be back with you. Thank you so much for listening. I know you have a lot of choice. I hope you've had a great week. My intention this weekend was to take it easy, recharge. It's been a bit of a busy week for me. So I said to Bonnie, I'm going to chill a little bit. And this is going to be a little bit of me time. And I got a book that I'm really enjoying reading. It's a biography of the Beatles producer, Sir George Martin. It's really good. There's two volumes of it, actually. But things intervene. And you've got to roll with it, man. You've just got to roll with whatever life hands you, don't you? On Saturday night, our Prime Minister had an urgent press conference to say there's a bit of community transmission that they're not sure about of COVID in Auckland, which is New Zealand's largest city. And for the second time in a month, she's taken us to level three. That is the second highest COVID alert level. You're quite locked down. You're expected to work from home If you can, it was all on. You know, I had to contact my senior leadership team and my day job and make sure that all of our staff who were affected knew about what our plans were in this regard and send a message to all staff. So that was all happening on Saturday night and the emergency alerts went off right across the country at 9.50. The rest of the country has gone up from COVID alert level one to level two, just as a precaution. And then even before that, Mushroom FM's streaming media servers, over which we don't have any direct control, went down for at least eight hours. And I tried to sleep and didn't sleep that well because I kept wanting to check on whether it was back or not. And I woke up at about 2.30 and saw that it still wasn't up and so decided, all right, I'm going to see if I can cobble an alternative together to see if we can get the show back on the road because... I checked the status of the server provider that we use and it said everything's operational and there was no communication. You know, I filed a support ticket to tell them that we were having this issue. No communication at all. And it just goes to show how important it is when you're running a customer-driven business like that to just communicate during these things. I finally identified a replacement that looked viable and I was just about to start redirecting the big services like the soup drinker and various other things to this new provider when our old one came back on. So we'll have a play with the new provider and and see whether it's worth doing the switch. There are risks in doing that. People have bookmarks and all sorts of players that might not work if you change and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's a big decision. I did want to talk about something though. And as a precursor to this, As I mentioned on Mushroom FM last week, but it didn't get into the version that we published in the podcast feed, it was a real honor for me to talk to a Russian talk show. They stream it on YouTube, and there's a podcast version of it, and it was so slick using the Zoom language interpretation features that they have now. And the whole thing was really professionally run, and the questions were incredibly insightful talking away about the things that I've done in my life and the things that I'm doing now in my career and the employment of disabled people and various things like that. And they talked to me quite a bit on the show about what motivates me to do the things that I do in a voluntary capacity, like Mushroom FM, which is, of course, purely voluntary, and this podcast. And as I said in episode 100, it takes a long time to do this podcast every week. 
many hours to try and keep the quality up, especially when I'm doing a demo, a tutorial or something like that. It does take quite a long time. And I'm happy to do it because I feel first that I can give something back. And I think that's really important. If you have the knowledge and the ability to share it, it's a good thing to spread it, isn't it? But also, I get a lot out of the podcast too, because people email in with their thoughts and perspectives. And when I started this podcast, I didn't want it to be just a technology podcast, because that doesn't really reflect all of who I am. I called it Mosin at Large, because I want it to reflect the totality of who I am. Someone who's very interested in politics around the world, super interested in technology and cricket and, of course, the Beatles and all sorts of things. And we have and meditation and low-carb things. And we've talked about all those things on Mosin at Large. So it really is a mixed bag. And for the most part, the feedback that we get on the podcast is really positive. People are very kind, and I appreciate that. And I've learned over the years, especially being on social media, that sometimes you've got to know when to let criticism go and when to respond to it. And like many people, I think I'm a work in progress on this one. Earlier in my social media usage, I would engage a lot more with critics. And if somebody responded aggressively to me or said something aggressive, then I would respond in kind. And of course, what that does is escalate it. I have gone through a period of late, the last few years or so, particularly as I've started doing meditation and things of that kind, where I just don't usually respond at all. And I sometimes wonder whether I've let the pendulum swing too far in the opposite direction. Because sometimes if you don't challenge something that someone says, it's sort of out there without an alternative perspective being offered. So it's a really difficult balance to strike. The other thing I'm also mindful of is certainly on Twitter, where I spend a lot of my time on social media, I usually have many more times the number of followers than the person doing the trolling or the aggressive criticism. So by responding, in a way, I'm amplifying what's being said. And so I try and bite my tongue and I might vent about it a bit to Bonnie and leave it at that and don't make a public response. So I give you that context because I did think long and hard about whether to mention this. But then I decided, you know, you can't have sand kicked in your face all the time, can you? So what I want to talk to you about is podcast reviews, particularly Apple podcast reviews. Now, I don't know how many people look at them. There is some suggestion that they influence Apple's algorithms about what to prioritize in a certain category. And when someone leaves an Apple podcast review, it affects the rating in the store that it's left in. So, for example, if an American leaves an Apple podcast review that's a low rating, it influences the rating that a podcast gets only in that particular market. And I have had some very useful data come through from podcast reviews. I actually use a service called My Podcast Reviews, which scours various sites that take podcast reviews. And every week, they email you a digest of the reviews that you've received. And a few months ago, I was trying some new plugins to produce this podcast, a way of processing the audio from the way that we used to and the way that we are doing again. And one or two of the podcast reviews that came through during that period when we were using this alternative way 
of doing post-production on the audio made it clear that they didn't like the sound as much. And that was really helpful, particularly when one of the people who contacted said that they were deafblind or significantly hearing impaired and they were having trouble hearing compared with the way we used to do it. And I thought to myself, you know, we give the email address every single episode it probably would have been a lot quicker if that person or those people had emailed me directly and said, hey, we think the sound's taken a turn for the worst. But luckily for them, I'm conscientious enough to monitor the podcast review sites. So I did pick it up. Not all podcasters will. If you leave a review of a podcast, there is no guarantee that a podcaster, the person making the podcast, will see it. But I did. And after the feedback, I decided, okay, if people feel that strongly about it, that they would actually go and leave a review, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, then I will change it back. And we have, and people seem happy, so it's always good to get that feedback. If you're a podcast listener, one thing you might not realize is that there is no way for a podcast creator like me to reply to your review, at least not in Apple Podcast Reviews. It's very frustrating because it basically means that anybody can say what they like. Apple has quite a strict policy on when they will delete a review, and by and large, I support that. They say that if there's abuse or outright trolling, to contact them and they will consider deleting the review. But generally, the reviews stay there, and the podcaster has no right of reply at all to offer their perspective on what's being said. For example, in the case of this audio quality issue, I would love to have replied to the reviews and said, thank you very much for your feedback. It's changed back to the way it was now. So people know that I'm conscientious, that I've heard their feedback, and that I do take it seriously. But Apple does not give me the opportunity to do that. That's why emailing the podcast creator directly, if they're giving an email address, is a far better way because you can then potentially have dialogue. So this week, on the 20th of February to be precise, a reviewer who doesn't use their real name in the review, which I personally think is pretty cowardly. I mean, I use my real name every week and do this podcast, and you know who I am, and you know what I stand for. But anyway, this reviewer gives the podcast three stars and says in the heading informative and the review reads this is a good podcast that is technologically informative but the political opinion is off base and insult to your intelligence that's their poor grammar not mine now it could possibly be that i read this review at sort of 2:15 in the morning when i got up to check on the status of a voluntary project that was playing up but i don't think so this really disappointed me and i think it points to what is wrong with so much of the discourse that we're having at the moment. I am in no doubt that many of the people who listen to Mosin at Large, and we get thousands of listeners every week, and I'm very grateful for it, do not share my political perspective. I am unashamedly left of center, and I'm also an atheist. And I do make that point on a fairly regular basis not for many of my audience, but specifically actually for my US audience, where it can be very hard to be an atheist. Very hard. If you're in certain parts of the United States and you come out as being an atheist, 
it can be very, very tough in a social sense, perhaps in your workplace, if it happens to come up and you mention that you're atheist, you can be shunned, you can be discriminated against. It's really tough. And that's why there are actually so many podcasts coming out of the United States for the atheist community to try and give them support. It's a very different thing in New Zealand. We've had several atheist prime ministers who just say, yeah, I'm an atheist, and everybody shrugs their shoulders and says, yeah, whatever. But it's not like that in the United States. I also believe that government can be the answer to problems, whereas there are people on the right of the political spectrum who believe that pretty consistently government is the problem. And as I said at the time that the networks called the election for President Biden, There is legitimate debate to be had about the role of government, particularly in a blindness context. And what role does the government have to play in leveling the playing field for disabled people generally and all those things? Now, what really irks me and disappoints me about this review is that they don't say Jonathan doesn't share my political viewpoint. I disagree with him on the politics. The review might even have said, as a couple of people have, I wish you would just lay off the politics, which I'm not going to do because that would require me to not be me. And since I spend all the time putting it together and I fund the podcast, then I'll say what I like. (laughs) But it didn't even say any of those things. It simply says that the political viewpoint is way off base and insults your intelligence. The interesting thing about this is, that anybody's political viewpoint is welcome on this show. You will remember that after the US election, and there was the delay, I actually asked people to tell me what it was about former President Trump, as he is now, that caused people to support him. And we did have some people who wrote in, and I read their emails in their entirety, and in one case, I had TTS, read the email. Later, we're going to talk about Facebook and we're going to read an email from somebody who disagrees with me about the comments that I made last week about Facebook. And he makes a series of points that are well constructed and I will rebut those points. So the debate may well continue and you're welcome to contribute to that. Isn't it sad that we have someone out there who chooses to respond to a volunteer's podcast, who is simply seeking to initiate some well-mannered, thoughtful discussion by saying that just because they are being exposed to a viewpoint that they personally disagree with, that it's off base and insults their intelligence. I think that no objective person could suggest that what we have here is not an intelligent conversation. As we say in the description of this podcast, you may be challenged, you may disagree sometimes, it may infuriate you sometimes, but I try to go to great lengths to ensure that everybody is heard and heard fairly and that perspectives that differ from mine are offered. You will note, for example, that we have had people of the Muslim faith expressing their views in recent times about the guide dog issues, and we will get to that again as well. We try 
to help people to understand views that are not necessarily theirs. And I think that's important in 2021. In an era where you can get into your own political bubble and just be exposed to views that coincide with your own, how are we going to advance as a species and understand each other and perhaps find middle ground where that's possible if we don't hear different perspectives from ours? We may well walk away with a slightly different view if we're open-minded enough. It just blows my mind that someone would take the time to open up Apple Podcasts and find this one and write that kind of review just because things are said on it in a respectful way that they disagree with rather than send an email in and contribute to the discussion. So I must confess it is a little bit demoralizing. You put a lot of work into something, you try very hard to make sure that everybody has a fair shake, and you get a review like this. And because a lot of blind people perhaps have accessibility issues with Apple Podcast reviews, or they they just don't get around to it, one three-star rating like this can have uh, a bit of an impact on the overall rating. So if you think that there is a place for a diversity of political opinions to be heard, that blind people are more than caricatures that just need to talk about technology, and that as people who live in the world and are affected by what governments do and don't do, then maybe you might take the time this week to give this podcast a five-star review and a nice comment. I would appreciate that. In the meantime, you can be assured that I will be here continuing to volunteer many hours a week to do this, to expose you to a wide range of topics and a wide range of opinions about those topics. And never insult your intelligence. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Alexander's writing in with what he says are two quick tips. Hi, Jonathan. I wanted to give two quick tips for you and your listeners. First, I noticed that in iOS 14.4, Apple started to shorten the control types like JAWS and NVDA do. So instead of writing button in Braille, voiceover shows the short form. This seems to be new in this version of iOS, as I have not noticed this in earlier versions at least in the German language. That must be new just to the German, Alexander, and perhaps to other countries, because certainly I think I'd remember if I saw things like button written out in full. Pretty sure that it's been BTN for quite, well, for as long as I can remember, actually. Second, he says, I am using a Bluetooth headset from Sennheiser to listen to music. I also use tools like SoundForge to do editing. 
The problem with Bluetooth is it takes a moment to wake up. As JAWS now provides the functionality to send silence to the Bluetooth headset, I turn this feature on when editing files. This allows me to hear exactly what is going on, and I do not miss a thing. When finished, I turn this off as I use Braille only. Thanks, Alexander. It's a good feature that JAWS has added, and of course you can also get a similar feature if you use, say, Narrator as well by using Silenzio, which is a standard own utility. It's interesting that you're happy doing work in SoundForge with your Bluetooth headset. I guess latency with Bluetooth is improving, but certainly with older Bluetooth devices, there was enough latency that it could really affect editing. But it's nice to see us making progress in that regard. We have a report on the health of the NHS, the National Health Service in Britain. This comes from Andrew Walker. He says, in response to something which someone questioned last year, The National Health Service in the UK is itself fit and well, if under strain from virus issues. Yes, there are issues because it is a finite resource, but any citizen can get medical treatment free at the point of contact. There are some charges for dentistry and there are charges for prescriptions from which older people and people with financial issues do not have to pay. We do have a problem with a shortage of doctors, as older ones retire and replacements are not easy to find. But I understand that additional training places are being made available. Other than that, the NHS is busy vaccinating the population, with about 12 million already having been protected. Good on you, Andrew. Thank you for giving us that update. And like you, I am thrilled. I I cannot imagine living in a country where healthcare isn't considered a human right and where it is available not just on your ability to pay, but based on your need for that healthcare. Here's a question from Pete. He writes, I have a reasonable collection of local history books, which will never see the light of Kindle or any other digital media because Guernsey is such a small place with a very limited number of interested people. As my ability to read print has now pretty much disappeared, I'd like to see what everyone thinks about finding a way to scan these books into a digital format. I have tried a flatbed scanner, but I have a life, and this takes forever for less than satisfactory results. I know some services will do the job for you, but will destroy the book in the process. I want my kids to be able to read these if they choose, so that is not a choice. What is your experience of this? I will need help to line the book up either digitally or by touch and hopefully something which captures the image pretty quickly. Lastly, like most, I can't spend a pile of money on it. I looked at the Pearl camera, but with open book, it's very pricey. And as I only use JAWS at work, NVDA and Narrator at home, I don't see it as a choice. Ideally, I'd like to get the books into a format which could be read by TTS, but as a newbie Braille reader, and as Guernsey has menu French-sounding names, I would probably use Braille eventually. I noted your discussion point on PC for using JAWS if you were on a budget. I use an Acer laptop, forgive me, can't recall name and model, but it is a 2018 machine with 8 gigabytes memory and an i5 processor, and was around £600 at the time, so not top of the range even then. When FS offered the extended free license, I took advantage, so I could improve my skills during lockdown 1. Yes, 
Guernsey is currently in a hard lockdown due to a second wave caused by the Kent strain of the virus. It is hopefully past its peak, but frustrating as this looks to have been caused by one person breaking strict self-isolation rules following off-island travel. Jaws worked absolutely flawlessly with Edge, Chrome, Office, including doing some reasonably challenging stuff in Excel. I didn't have to run lots of different tasks at once, and that might be an issue. But as a home user, when this laptop goes to the digital afterlife, I am already debating whether I need a new one, as my home use case is limited. I like having a laptop, as it means if I need to master a new task on, say, Office, I can work at my own pace when I want. Thanks, Pete. You've tried the obvious things that I would have suggested. A flatbed scanner, I'm surprised that the results aren't that accurate. They will be slow by today's standards, but they're probably as accurate as you're going to get, because as long as you've got the text laying down flat on the scanner, you're probably going to get the best view of the text that way. The Pearl camera sounds ideal for what you want to do. I do appreciate the cost, and I wonder whether there might be some sort of grant you might apply for. But you'd be able to position the book in exactly the right place every time because there are clamps. It's designed for a blind person to set the book up in the perfect view of the camera. And then you just snap the images and let Open Book do the recognizing. So it's got this mode in it where it detects you flipping the page. So literally what would happen is you'd sit there with the book, flip a page and Pearl would go click, flip another page and Pearl would go click. It'd be over very quickly in terms of your part of the process. And then you just leave Open Book to do the scanning and recognition and you'd have the best quality you possibly can from the book. The other cool thing about Open Book that I like, I mean, I know there are mainstream scanning solutions out there, but why I really like Open Book still is that you can scan, recognize and read at the same time. And every so often I do find a book that I want to read that I can't read in any other way because it's not available electronically, like the situation you're in. And I really like that approach where you can just listen to the book as you scan it, and there's no need to kind of wait while it recognizes and and do the whole thing and then open a Word document or whatever. That said, maybe people have some home-based solutions with other cameras that might be cheaper, that would let you use OCR software that's cheaper as well, that will give you good results on a book. I apologize, I don't recall if you're an iPhone user or not. That could be another option if you got one of those scanner stands that are out there, and they're not expensive, they're sort of often plasticky or cardboard gadgets that just line the camera up for you, and you use an app like KNFB Reader or VoiceStream Scanner or one of those, you may be able to get the book scanned that way. But I think that Pearl would be the gold standard for what you are wanting to do. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. This is Allison Fallon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa is recovering from a really bad storm. Actually, Oklahoma is recovering. And I wanted to comment on the cube slate. I used a cube slate when I was at the School for the Blind in elementary school because I left in sixth grade and went to public school. And I sure do remember it. It was made of rubber. You could kind of twist it a little. It was somewhat flexible. And I think they had two types. They had one type that had bigger cubes, probably for the younger kids who wouldn't have the dexterity to deal with the tinier cubes 
And then there were the ones with the tinier cubes. And that's the way I learned math. And I had never thought of the four cube or the ones with three dots being a power cube. But that is a thought. But I thought they were really frustrating because it took quite a while to set up a problem. And heaven forbid, if you lean down to pick up one and you put your hand on one of those cubes, it really dug into your hand because those dots were sharp. But I do remember it, not so fondly, but that's the way we learn. Thanks, Alison. I'm wishing you all the best in Oklahoma and also elsewhere that has been so badly affected by storms in recent times. Well, hello, Jonathan. I thought that I would talk about the abacus. Yes, indeed. And I remember, although I don't know I ever learned all of them, but I remember there was a very esoteric thing. It sounds very esoteric to me now called the Nine Secrets of Addition, or something like this. The Nine Secrets of the Abacus, or something. And <laughs> it was like, that was how it was talk, taught in the textbook, I think, for the teachers, perhaps. And uh, yes, yes, you you clear nine and set one left, uh, and that, that, all love, that lovely stuff. I Multiplication and division, I think, went the other way for some reason. You had to go left to right. And I can't remember why that was now. I didn't do so well with those aspects of it, but yes, I remember clearly being schooled, at least in um, primary and junior school, as they were called, in the use of the abacus. The big one you were talking about, I remember something for for young children, young young children, babies, and young children, which was like an abacus. It didn't have the five bead, but you move these beads along a uh, along wires, and it was just kind of refined motor skills. But I don't know if I remember any any large version of of the abacus. But I do remember you could couple the little abaci together and make a big one for a really complex math problem. By the time I got to high school, of course, we weren't using those. But I think when uh, you know a few years earlier, they had been using them in in high school for for mathematics for sure at the school for the blind where I, where I went. But yes, indeed. The abacus, I do, and I think Mike might still have one, though we just recently did a kind of a declutter, so I'm not sure if it's still around, but I think, I think he might still have an abacus. It was cool when I saw it for the first time in his in the storage room. I was like, wow, you still have an abacus. How cool is that? Very cool indeed. Jane Jordan reminds us that the abacus that we are talking about was the Cranmer abacus. And now that she mentions it, yes, I do remember that vaguely as a kid, that that's what it was called. And then, of course, we went on and we got the Cranmer Modified Perkins in our resource room at my high school. Does anyone remember that? That was the thing with a Perkins-style keyboard, but you could connect it to an Apple II computer, and we did, and use it as an embosser. My goodness, it made a racket. It made such a racket, you would think it was designed for tennis, I tell you. And then when I wrote a bit about this to say on our media list, to which you can subscribe by sending a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. Shameless plug, media-subscribe at mosin.org. And I said we were going to be talking about old maths gear. And I mentioned Tim. And I have always thought, because I guess I've never seen his name in Braille, that it was Kramner, C-R-A-M-N-E-R. And I was quite rightly castigated and corrected by Byron Sykes 
And if memory serves, Byron is from Cranmer Country in Louisville, Kentucky, so he should know. And he said it's not Cranmer, it's Cranmer. And I looked it up, and he's absolutely right. It's C-R-A-N-M-E-R, Tim Cranmer, an inventor who made a huge contribution to the blind community in various ways, both directly and indirectly. But as for the abacus, I hope you did not throw the abacus out, Sarah. That would be a tragedy, a tragedy. I have this, shall we say, robust discussion with Bonnie a lot. She says there's lots of tech we never use, you know, old stuff we need to declutter it. And I say, Bonnie, Bonnie, I say, have you not heard about this Apple One computer that just sold for an amazing sum? And the reason why this person was able to get this huge sum for the Apple One and keep his significant other, assuming one exists, in the style to which they've become accustomed is probably because he resisted his significant other when his significant other said, you've got too much old technology that you never use and it's cluttered and we should throw it out. And Bonnie says, I don't think that's ever going to happen to your old charges that you can't even remember what they're for and all these like dead Braille and speaks or whatever. You know, I, de- I, I don't think that's an equivalent, she tells me. Fooey is what I say, fooey. Anyway, so we, 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 we've had a few clean outs. John Millier is going to comment on the Cube Slate in just a moment. But first he says, thank you for your help with my sound on the Dell computer. All is well. The sound is like nothing I have heard before. If anyone has a Dell, set it to speaker, regardless of what you are using. Now on the Cube Slate, I used one when I went to school in the States. I was in school with sighted and blind students, and the teachers could have you set the same problem on the slate, just like she had it on the blackboard. The school got you ready to go to your public high school, and the cube slate was used because when in high school, the teacher, without knowing Braille, could set the problem up like they had on the blackboard. I never used the abacus because it was not used in the local public high school. Petra says, I used the Cube Slate many years ago. I think it would be great for people who like to do Sudoku problems. I like solving those, says Petra. And Andy says, regarding the abacus, I still have one of the abacai that was standard issue in my school. I recently found it in a box of junk. Jonathan, this is Roy in Little Rock. I thought I would send you a recording this week so that you could practice on your drawl. It's pretty good, but you can tweak it. Actually, no, I would like to talk to you about a couple of things that I heard on your podcast last week. In 1954, I went to the Tennessee School for the Blind, and I was introduced to an object called the type slate. It was a Similar to what Andy was talking about last week, it was a metal slate, 25 holes by 25 holes, but these were round holes, and you used metal type in these holes, and by turning the type in different directions, you could write different numbers on the type slate. That's about the best I can explain it, because it's been a long time, and... uh, I learned to use it. I learned to set numbers on the type slate, and I suppose that the next step would have been to work problems, math problems on the type slate. 
But the year ended and my family relocated to Arkansas. And so I never did see another type slate ever the rest of my life. Tennessee School for the Blind had a a relationship with Vanderbilt University. And it's possible that that was just an experiment they were trying because they had a graduate program at Vanderbilt for educators of blind children. So that might have just been something that they were experimenting with. But I never saw another one. Now, when I got to the Arkansas School for the Blind two years later, they came up with this cube slate, which is exactly as Andy described it. It was, uh, I think, 25 by 25, and it had square holes, and you placed these cubes. They were Braille cubes, had a blank space on one side, and by turning the cubes in different directions, you could get different Braille numbers. At that time, we used slates and styluses exclusively. Actually, I used slates and styluses all the way through school, all the way through college. That's all I had to write with. And so the cube slates worked pretty good because they enabled you to set up a problem, work it, and then write the answer on the slate and stylus. And so we used them for some time, and they worked very well, except for the fact that they were a little slow because you had to find the cube that you wanted and you had to put it into the right place. And depending on how uh, much dexterity you had, uh, it was slower for some people than it was for others. But it was a real good invention. Always good to hear from you, Roy. Thank you so much. And I will keep working on the draw, but there will never be nothing like the real thing. Mercy. Now, someone who does not have a draw, really, is Steve Catway, as we catway over to Canada for this comment on this subject. And he says, hi, Jonathan, your comment about the cube slates in your announcement for tomorrow's show really took me back. In the dark days, when I went to the Ontario School for the Blind, 1955 to 1967, we used the cube slate in at least grade one and possibly grade two. If memory serves, it was made of wood, and the plastic cubes had Braille, with an uppercase B, numbers on them. I'd love to hear from someone with a bit of memory of that slate. Well, you can, Steve. You might have missed last week's show, because it was a comment from Andy about the cube slate that got us on this track, and he has a great recollection of it, and talked about the way that the Braille cubes could do multiple things because of the way that you inserted them. You know, so there were dots on, but depending on which direction you inserted them, you got different numerals. So do check out episode 100 of the podcast. In either grade two or three continues, Steve, we switched to the Taylor slate, which I remember better. I believe it was made in the UK. It was metal, maybe aluminium, but probably not that far back. And its legs, called type, could be inserted into holes in one of 16 positions. Eight with the smooth end facing up, and eight with the pointed end, two sharp points facing up. The digits one through zero and operands were denoted by the position of the pegs. We used those units grade eight and then did everything in high school in Braille, either on a Perkins Braille writer or a slate, which we were returned to in grade 11 to prepare us for education beyond OSB. In grade 12, our vice principal offered an optional course for anyone in our class 
interested in learning to use the Cranmer Abacus, as it either had or was about to be introduced in the elementary grades. I did the course and still have my abacus. I think I still know how to use it. I'd love to know how blind students do maths these days. In my support years, there were various approaches that were governed more by the university students' preferences and capabilities. I got my first talking calculator in June 1976, the TSI Speech Plus talking calculator, and never looked back. I still have it, and it still works plugged in. My calculator of choice these days, though, is the Sharp EL640. Ding, 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 ding. Time is up. I got it 38 years ago, last Tuesday when I attended TSI's opening ceremonies and open house at their North Bernardino Avenue facility in Mountain View, California. I attended with Vito and Marion Procia, and before going, spent a considerable amount of money at their place. A gentleman, if there ever was one. I wonder if somebody's collected all the old technical innovations bulletins that he used to do. My goodness, I just loved listening to his descriptions of all these amazing gadgets. It sounded like a wonderland. And I remember, I think we've talked about this before when Vito's come up, the way that he would be very emphatic. The toll-free number, he'd say, for orders only. And he really made it sound like, woe betide ye, if you dare call that number for anything other than orders only. And, of course, it didn't really matter here because it wasn't toll-free. You couldn't call American toll-free numbers in those days. But, ah, the technical innovations bulletins, happy days. But I am interested that you're still using that calculator, Steve, because these days you can just ask your voice assistant of choice to do calculations, can't you, whether that be Siri or the soup drinker or Google, and you get the answer right away. And, of course, you've got the calculator built into your Windows computer. There are so many options these days. For all things Mosin at Large, check out the website, where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosin.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Last week, we talked about the brouhaha in Australia, where the Australian government is getting ready to implement a code that would require big tech to pay newspaper providers that they link to for the content. And over the week, there have been some developments with this. Facebook and the Australian government have reached an agreement. It's one of those negotiations where both parties can say that they've had a victory, some give and take on both sides there and all that stuff. For me, it doesn't take away the fundamental point that I was making last week about the importance of standing up for the principle that if you have content on the internet and it's freely available, then anyone must be able to freely link to it. And in episode 100 of the show, I went into some detail about why I thought that. And if you missed it, you can go back and hear it if you're interested. Brian Borowski has responded to this. He says, I listened to your commentary pertaining to the Australian government versus Facebook matter. There are a number of things you failed to consider in what was said. First, Facebook is different than Google and that it does far more tracking of users, and that includes when going to other sites, completely independently of Facebook. 
I cite Zuckerberg's whining about Apple's app disclosure requirements, claiming that this would do terrible things to small businesses when it's actually his bottom line that will suffer when users have to actually allow the immense amount of snooping that is done. He's afraid people might for some reason have genuine concerns and might not want to allow such hoovering up of their personal information. Secondly, if I followed your logic about Facebook providing newspapers extra traffic, we can just say something like, if Facebook directed more traffic to the contents of your book, how could this possibly be a bad thing? The answer is that you wouldn't get paid for anything, but at least you'd have more readers. The newspapers pay people to generate the content, which means they have to have a way to get paid so they can pay the authors for their quality work. Thirdly, Facebook collects all the advertising revenue from having some quantity of quality content available for users of their site and applications, but the producers of such content can at least be contented with more traffic, some sort of compensation notwithstanding. The proof that this isn't working is that great numbers of newspapers have gone broke and shut down. Some of this, of course, is just a part of the internet-induced changes to our world. But that isn't the whole story. To put it more succinctly, Facebook uses higher than their standard quality news content from other sources to boost the overall generally low content of its standard fare. I could probably think of more ideas pertaining to this matter, but that touches on what it seems to me are the main points. Please tell me I'm wrong. And it's signed Brian Borowski, an old boy longing for the good old days of how the internet was in the last few years of the 80s. Brian, I wouldn't have been as emphatic if you hadn't invited me to say so, but yes, I think you are wrong. (laughs) Thank you very much for initiating the discussion and replying to the comments of last week. I really appreciate that. And I would like to respond to them in quite some depth. First, just recapping, in my last week comment, I was careful to say that I wasn't defending Facebook because I liked it or considered it a reputable company, but because once governments start to interfere with the fundamental principle that one public site must be allowed to freely link to another public site with public content that's available on that site, it'll be the end of the internet as we know it, and blind people will be the poorer for it. You say that you're longing for the good old days of how the internet was in the late 80s. I don't think I'd want to turn the clock back quite that far because then we'd be back into our primary sources of information being things like Telnet and Gopher and things that I think were far inferior to what we have now. But if you do indeed want to preserve those key characteristics of that era, openness was one of them. I accept that it wasn't commercial back then. The internet was then a kind of elitist institution. People who had access to it were usually from universities, that kind of thing. But openness of information access has always been a key tenet of the way that the internet works. So I would think that you would be strongly opposed to what's happening in Australia. And I see only this week, as I said, would happen. Other countries are showing some interest. Canada is showing some interest now. But you made three points, and I'd like to deal with each of them specifically. On your first point, I resoundingly applaud efforts made by many to require greater transparency regarding what data is being collected about us. It's a great thing. 
With information comes informed consent or our right to withhold that consent. And Apple's doing a fantastic job of shining some light on pretty scary practices on the internet by Facebook and others. A savvy user should be aware of the kind of cookies that they're allowing on their system and what's being collected about them. But the internet is now this commodity. It's a commercial thing, and there are a lot of users out there who are not savvy. I think of people who just use the thing, don't know how it works, and often are very surprised by what is being collected about them. When somebody who's a bit tech-savvy, you know, it's Christmas time, you go over to a relative's place or something, and you're the resident tech nerd of the family, and you do these little checks on people's machines, and you tell them what's being collected, and they're horrified. So it should be more transparent, and it should be easier to get these things sorted. And Apple's doing a tremendous service to the world in this regard. As I said on the show last week, I did leave Facebook when I was able to for a while because of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which showed contempt for people's personal data and the ethical use of it. So while you say I failed to consider it in my comments, in fact, what I did was call Facebook out on last week's show for this very behavior. But at the same time, I also expressed a view last week that grown-ups need sometimes to separate their general dislike of someone or something from a very important principle that's being stood for. And I think that is really important in this case. So what I'm saying is that Facebook's tracking of users' data and the lack of transparency around that is horrible, but it has nothing to do with the fact that a key principle of the internet is that any public site must freely be able to link to any other public site containing public information. The privacy issues are separate, very important, but separate. And I would also not let Google off the hook so easily. Google is collecting an immense amount of data about you if you are using Google in any form. You may or may not be aware of a product called Google Analytics, It's a pretty popular trick of the trade for many websites. It's free to businesses and many use it to find out information about people who visit their site, where they are visiting from, what browser they use to visit with, what operating system they're coming from, what site they came from before they visited you, and many other pieces of information that have a lot of impact on the way that a business operates. There was a scandal a while ago, I remember reading about this and being quite intrigued by it, where data was being collected on the browser and the operating system that users were coming in with. And if the user was coming in with a Mac, they were charging more for a product than if somebody was coming in with Windows or some other operating system. The logic being that if people had the money to throw away on a Mac, then they had a little bit more money to throw away on the price of what was being offered in the business. I mean, it's a really bad thing, but it was something that was going on. It might still be going on. So these issues go much wider than Facebook. Now, they don't know you by name, but they know a lot about your patterns. Most savvy businesses and indeed some private websites who are just nerds and want to know about who's visiting, are using Google Analytics to get all that information about their visitors all the time. And if you're concerned about that, you should use browsers or browser plugins that mitigate against that sort of data collection, like 
an incognito or private tab in your browser, or even a browser like Brave, which specializes in privacy. Facebook is a particularly egregious offender, but they're far from alone. And if we're going to say that no one who tracks user patterns can freely link to other websites, then again, you grind the internet to a halt. The internet is gone as we know it. The key to this issue is providing users with good quality information and allowing them to opt in or out based on informed consent. Now, on to your second point. Of course, I would be concerned if Facebook linked to the actual content of a book that I had written, depriving me of revenue. But that is not making a like-for-like comparison. No one, including the Australian government, is saying that this is to safeguard material that isn't publicly available. Let's spend some time talking through how newspapers get their revenue presently. Broadly speaking, there are two models in common usage, and Facebook being able to link to them helps them in both cases, not hinders them. First, newspapers place ads on their site, which they want their readers to see, and even better, click on. The newspaper earns revenue based on ad impressions, how many people have viewed, and how many people have clicked through. In this model, Facebook is helping those newspaper publishers by driving traffic to the site so people see the ads on those pages in a particular article, increasing impressions. It helps with discovery of articles, particularly articles that people share a lot. Facebook's algorithms will prioritize those. So specifically because of Facebook's algorithms, the newspaper will get more people coming to the site, therefore the newspaper gets more people viewing the ad Therefore, they get more revenue than had Facebook not driven all that traffic to the article. That's because the article remains on the newspaper's website where they have control of what ads go in there. It is not that Facebook is repurposing the article. Now, sure, Facebook benefits from its users sharing the article, but I would argue that there is a public good component here too. We all benefit from Facebook sharing information from reputable sources. The second major way that newspapers derive revenue is by making some articles freely available to entice readers, but putting a good deal of content behind a paywall. Here we might be coming close to your analogy of Facebook freely making the contents of one of my books available on the site. If it were true that Facebook were circumventing the paywall, they are not, at least not in any widespread way. Technically, it is certainly possible for a user to pay a subscription to a newspaper, log in to the premium part of the site, copy the text of a paywalled article to the clipboard, and paste it into a Facebook post. That's not unique to Facebook, though. You could do that on LinkedIn or your own blog or Medium or any number of places. Now, if that happens, the entity that's being used for that copyright infringement has very little control over that, and I see no evidence that it's widespread. But if it does happen, if any copyrighted material is being shared in that way, there are already legal avenues available for a publisher to exercise because this is copyright infringement, and I would 100% support the publisher going after the user who did that, just like I would go after a user who would do that with one of my books. In reality, though, what happens most of the time is that when an article is behind a paywall, 
the publisher shares enough of it freely to try and lure the user into subscribing. You've probably seen this. Someone provides a link on social media, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or wherever you uh, choose to hang out, and you think, wow, that sounds interesting. So you choose the link and you start reading the article. And just as it's getting really good, the article stops and you get told that to see the full story, you need to subscribe to the newspaper for the low, low price of whatever it is. And when a user shares that kind of article by including a link to it in the post where the user lands on that page that says you have to subscribe, the user on Facebook is again doing the newspaper a favor by having the user click through to the article on the newspaper's site, seeing something they might not otherwise have seen, and being so intrigued by what they read that they cough up their subscription. They pay for it so they can read the rest. That might not have happened had they not seen the teaser on Facebook. Facebook is responsible for these newspapers gaining more revenue from their subscription models than they otherwise would have. Now on to your third point. You say that Facebook collects all the advertising revenue because of quality content being available on their platform that's written by others. I've covered this in part already. It's simply not the case. When a user clicks through to a newspaper's site, they see ads served up by that site not by Facebook. What we're seeing is old media having trouble adapting to change, just like the music and video industries struggled to adapt to new media. And you did indeed acknowledge this to some degree in your comments. You'll recall that for a while, the music and video industries sought to preserve their old, lucrative, no longer applicable revenue models through punitive copyright circumvention schemes that disadvantaged end users. The music industry got real in the end, but even now you see copy protection on commercial ebooks, and the most popular audiobook service is still Audible, which is also copy protected. I feel confident that will change eventually. The problem old media is dealing with isn't links to their publicly available content, it's how to make money from it. Yet there are examples of newspapers who quit whining about the changing digital landscape and adapted to it. The New York Times has a thriving business based on a paywalled website model, as do The Guardian and The Washington Post, and here The New Zealand Herald and others. All of them have presences on Facebook, which link to their premium content where users need to sign up and sign in to read the full thing. If that wasn't working for them, they could easily take it down. They are using Facebook to attract people to content people are happy to pay for because it's a good user experience and it's quality journalism. Old media is upset because businesses don't have unlimited advertising budgets and the fact is that for digital advertising, Facebook delivers the best value and the best results right now. Part of the reason for this is Facebook is where the people are. Last year, for example, our government here in New Zealand was criticised by big media for wide-scale advertising on Facebook about COVID. But COVID was an international crisis and the government had to reach people where they are. And Facebook is where a lot of people are and because of the data they collect, the advertising can be incredibly targeted and granular. If some newspapers are under strain, 
and they perhaps serve too small a community to adapt in their present form, then I'm afraid change is inevitable. We've seen it in radio before too, where a lot of radio has consolidated into networks. Maybe local newspapers just aren't as important anymore in an era of digital journalism. What was viable once may not be viable anymore as technology and preferences change. If there's a public good case for certain newspapers being assisted in some way, governments shouldn't solve that problem by bamboozling people who don't understand the principles of a free and open internet and taking advantage of the fact that people are all too ready for very good reason to believe Facebook is the bad guy. If newspapers need a helping hand of some kind, then we should have a reasoned discussion about the public good value that quality journalism adds and the degree to which we as a society value it, and if we do, by what means we should help it out. Extorting money out of a couple of private businesses, massive though they are, is dishonest, horrible public policy. I personally believe quite a high bar should be set for intervention. The market should be able to take care of this in most cases. After all, people paid for newspapers before the digital age, and some newspapers have survived and are thriving in this new environment. Old media needs to adapt and prove their value to the customer. Finally, I would make the point that the reasons why people stick with Facebook despite all the shenanigans is that it connects them with friends and family. Many people have said to me, particularly at the time that I quit Facebook and talked about why I was doing it, yeah, you're right, I agree, but I just like being in touch with my family and friends. They're all on it, and this is the best way to do it. Over 50% of Facebook users, according to recent data, get some news from it. That's true. But news isn't their primary reason for joining and keeping Facebook. It's mainly about the personal connections. Thanks for the dialogue, Brian. Appreciate it. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at m-o-s-e-n dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hey, Jonathan. This is Jim East from Florida. First off, I want to thank you for your great tutorial about an introduction to Clubhouse. I was able to reach out to a group of friends, and I was able to find someone that had an invitation and she shared it with me, and I've been on it for about three days now, and I've learned a lot. So I'll just be brief and say thank you for that information. I always get something new. The other thing I wanted to feedback is Facebook. I uh, understand a lot of thoughts and feelings about Facebook. I guess for me, the way I use it, especially someone being blind, is it's a great tool for me to reach out and find distant friends or maybe follow a little bit of what's going on with family, things like that. I don't get my news from Facebook. I don't spend probably more than an hour or two a week on Facebook trolling and listening and whatever. When I say trolling, I mean trolling like a boat patrol, just sifting through, not trolling and antagonizing people. So 
Anyway, um, but I would agree with you. They do you do better in all these platforms. You do better. But uh, in short, uh, to me, it's just a, a locator and a way to converse with people that I may not otherwise be able to find or converse with. But otherwise, uh, I would agree with you. These uh, services need to get better. Yeah, and it's the thing, isn't it? So many people are on the jolly old thing. Not so much younger people. Younger people don't seem to be as into Facebook as a rule. They're doing the TikTok and the Snapchat and other social media. But, you know, if you suddenly think, whatever happened to that pillock, that pillock of a school bully from 1977 or whatever, you can look them up and (laughs) find out where they are. Of course, if you really want to get into trouble, you can think whatever happened to that cute girl from 1986 or whatever, and you can probably look them up too. I tell you, there are so many people on the book. That's one of the things that makes it hard to get rid of. Hello, Jonathan, says Jennifer Parry. Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed all the detailed information and demonstrations of Clubhouse features. I learned so much and feel a lot more comfortable with getting started in Clubhouse. I very much look forward to establishing connections and learning from others through this audio platform. I think it has a lot of exciting potential. Thank you, Jennifer. Me too. And I was particularly encouraged to hear the Clubhouse founders say they're working on some more really cool things, including higher quality audio. Squee. And someone else who's in the Clubhouse is Victor Tsarin, and he says, Hey, Jonathan, great show discussing Clubhouse. Thanks as always. I find that one of the most distinct features of Clubhouse is how many experts are present there and available to share their knowledge with pretty much anyone. For example, you can listen in on the rooms where some of the world's prominent venture capitalists hang out talking about the new promising technology. Similarly, there are publishing houses discussing book publishing or promotion process or music producers conversing about touring and mental health of musicians, etc., etc., We should definitely take advantage of the platform, as it is difficult to say how long this openness will last. At some point, Clubhouse will either have to go public or be bought by someone in order to start generating money for those early investors. And from there, things can go anywhere. I am for one enjoying Clubhouse, but tracking the topics that interest me the most in the interest of time. Thanks again for the show. Well, thank you for writing in, Vic. I agree with you. Right now, it's a golden age of Clubhouse. I'm really enjoying it. And now that I've got my follower list under control, I am seeing some really interesting discussions. I've been in a few about podcasting, where I've participated. I was in one a while ago talking about the use of the term disabled and whether people think that term is okay or whether there should be other terms used. And it was good to get people's perspectives from around the world on that. So there is a lot to enjoy on Clubhouse. And when that higher quality audio comes along, it's going to be even more enjoyable for me. Hi, Jonathan. It's Allison Malloy in Cincinnati, Ohio. I have been using Clubhouse more in the past couple of days, especially, and I am really enjoying it. I have used it to connect with some folks who I haven't voice chatted with in a while, like you. And I've also used it now to meet some new people. And I've even had the experience of creating and moderating my own room. So whether it's a flash in the pan or whether, as I hope, it's here to stay, I'm really enjoying it right now. And I think 
anything that helps us to stay connected in this time of pandemic is is great. So I'm having fun. I hope that you and all listeners are having a wonderful day. Hello, Jonathan. It's Earl Zwicker from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm really enjoying the Mosin at Large podcast. And I enjoyed the episode where you reviewed Clubhouse. I've been on Clubhouse since February 6th, when it wasn't the most accessible thing around. But they came up with an update a few days after that, and accessibility improved quite a bit. And I'm excited about the future of this platform, seeing where it's going to go and what accessibility changes will take place and what kind of interesting conversations will come up. I've already been involved in several interesting conversations out there, and I think it's just going to get better and better. And I think the fact that it wasn't designed specifically for the blind and visually impaired community makes it the app that it is. Um, you know, you see so many different people out there and there's such a diverse, you know, community that I think it's just going to get better and better as more people come aboard this platform. And I'm really excited about the future of Clubhouse. I also wanted to pass along a tip and I don't know if you mentioned it in your podcast and I just missed it. And if I did, I apologize. But if you double tap on bulletin and you're looking at the list of events and you get to the end, you'll find that there's only about a couple of hours worth of events. But if you turn voiceover off and do a three finger swipe up and you can do as many swipe up with three fingers as you want and turn voiceover back on and you can see more events. And then when you get to the end of that, you can repeat the process and see even more events. I do this when I want to see events that are coming up within the next day or two. It's kind of a clunky workaround, but it works for now. And hopefully they'll improve the accessibility of the bulletin area and make it even better than it is right now. Because I find navigating through events is not the easiest thing to do, but it works for now. And I just hope that they'll improve it. You can also use this tip if you're looking at the list of people that you're following in your profile or if you're looking at the list of people that follow you. If there's over a 100, I find that it doesn't show the rest of the list. And the only way to see the rest of it, again, is to do turn voiceover off and do a three-finger swipe up to see more people. So I hope this tip helps some people. And great work on the podcast. Keep up the great work. Stay safe, take care, and bye for now. Thanks so much, Earl, for that tip, which I did not mention on the review. See, it just goes to show how cool it is to crowdsource these things because we all have these little bits of knowledge that we can share with one another. And speaking of that, if you are a podcaster at the moment or you are thinking of creating one and you would like to join our Blind Podcasters Roundtable, this is something I am trying this week and we'll see how much interest there is in it in maintaining this at roughly the same time every week. I may change the time a little bit if we keep doing it when my winter comes because all the time zones change. But for the moment, I'm trying this thing called the Blind Podcasters Roundtable on Clubhouse, and I hope we will get a good mix of people who know how to do this stuff well, and also people who are looking to get started, or maybe have just gotten started, and they're looking for some tips and tricks. And you can join the Blind Podcasters Roundtable. I have shared the link on the Mosin at Large Twitter account. It is going to be on 
at 1pm US Eastern Time on Sunday. That is, of course, 10am Pacific. It's currently 7am on Monday morning in New Zealand. That also equates to 6pm on Sunday in the UK. Lots of time zones there, but check the Mosin at Large Twitter account. You'll be able to click through to the event on Clubhouse and add it to your calendar. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Some more thoughts this week on the passage of guide dogs by those who have religious objections to dogs. And Michael Moran starts us off. He says, hi, Jonathan, according to the ADA, for those outside the US not familiar, that is the Americans with Disabilities Act, civil rights trumps religion. This is good, Michael says, because we don't want people using religion as an excuse. I have had Muslim drivers ask me to please keep the dog's mouth away from the space between the seats, and I complied. Tiffany Jessen wrote in after listening to episode 97, and she said, while I respect people having a difference of opinion, even enjoy hearing both sides of a debate, I felt the person who spoke up for Uber drivers was borderline attacking those who thought differently. It's been a few days since I listened to the portion of the episode, so I can't quote exactly, but I do specifically remember being called selfish and inconsiderate, which I truly resent and take offence to. What the speaker conveniently leaves out is that dog handlers have the law on their side, and the drivers with religious concerns do not If the driver chooses not to serve people with dogs, there is no reason why they can't choose other driving professions, which don't have passengers. Also, say I, as a passenger with a guide dog, do not feel like escalating the problem. Maybe I'm soft and don't want to get them into trouble. Or maybe I'm just sick of dealing with the continuous problem again. Who's to say their religious beliefs are any more valuable or important than my arriving on time. Then again, I guess that goes back to my being selfish and inconsiderate. But I definitely loved the examples that the lawyer suggested about Catholics and other pro-lifers simply not working in medical organizations or offices which provide abortion or other related services. Everyone has their rights to their beliefs, but I don't believe it is acceptable to push your beliefs on or otherwise affect others, no matter how opposite the belief may be. Hello, everyone. Hello, Jonathan. Congratulations for your 100th episode. Okay, my name is Abdel. I'm Muslim and I'm from France. And I want to talk about uh, Muslim, Islam and gay talk. First, you're right. Uh, You don't have to know uh, about Islam and about guide dog. When you're going somewhere, you are in your right to take your guide dog with you anywhere. Second, a lot of people don't know well their religion, but I like to talk a lot about and to, okay, be revendicative of, okay, about everything. In Islam, you can't take your guide dog when you are blind. When you need that blind dog, uh, blind. <laughs> if you take blind dog, okay, <laughs> you can do a lot of things. <laughs> Even if you want to be the guide of your dog, okay. When you, <laughs> when you uh, have guide dog, and you're blind, 
you need it for your independence. And in Islam, when you need something, okay, you can take it. For example, because a guide dog, Islam authorizes um, dogs for hunt, etc. So for people who are listening to podcasts and who ask about guide dog and blind blindness and using guide dog, I just suggest to them to visit a lot of websites with imam, etc. who talk um, about this subject. Um, in Arabic, for example, the website Islam Web. In English, uh, they can go to the Guardian, the um, journal from UK, uh, who talk about uh, a student who take his guide dog to the mosque without any problem. So, to conclude, the problem is, uh, Muslims, we have a lot of problems, a lot of preoccupation, sorry, English is not my first language, I hope that I'm clear. And we are just preoccupied by a lot of subjects about topics about racism, etc. And we don't take time to think deeply about social issues like that so if you're a muslim don't worry you can have guide dog and you can take it everywhere and if you are not muslim i don't care about muslims and about rules muslim rules because they are not your rules okay so congratulations another time i love your podcast so much um i hope that you can bring the thousand episodes Woo, a thousand episodes no pressure there thank you abdel i really appreciate you taking the time to send a message and i think yours might be the first that we've received from france so that makes it very special as well your comment certainly aligns with my own personal experience where i have been transported with my own guide dog and with my wife's guide dog by taxi and uber drivers who happen to be muslim And it's been no problem whatsoever. And Christopher's comment also backs us up when he was on the show last week with his well-thought-through email. Certainly there are some of the Muslim faith who believe that you can't have a guide dog in your taxi, but many, I would say the majority probably, don't seem to have any issue with it at all. So I suppose it may come down to interpretation in the end. But I appreciate you very much, receiving your message. Hello, Jonathan. My name's Maurice Mines. I live in Bakersfield, California. I am writing to talk about your most recent podcast that discussed Braille. I use Braille heavily, and I'm not the normal person, however. I am a Mac user, and I use my note-taker as the Braille display. When I have to write something, I write it in Windows because Apple's dictation is much to be desired. I have a written expression disorder, which means I have dyslexia of writing, so I use Dragon in Windows, and for the most part, I get no complaints. Differences in screen readers... Long story short, is that both um, macOS and 
Windows, specifically JAWS for Windows, have some things to be desired when it comes to Braille. Um, whenever JAWS upgrades, if you don't have their preferred Braille display, as always been, if you don't have a focus, then your support mileage may vary greatly. If you're on the Mac, if you are using something that isn't ultra-modern, or more importantly, something that Apple has tested, you may find yourself in a little bit of trouble when trying to pair it with the computer, or you will be forced to use Bluetooth if your display is older or not supported. But, again, I'm a staunch advocate of Braille. That's because without my hearing aids, I can hear virtually nothing. was learning sign language until the pandemic hit, but now I'm just practicing at home. If and when I get around to dealing with the Braille issue for me, I have a pretty good idea of what I would like to ask for. And hopefully when I ask for it, the request will be approved. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Let's get into looking at some things Apple this week. And Daniel Semro says, I too have an iPhone 7 and voice control will indeed work. It also works on iPad. Thank you, Daniel. Don Rosman is writing in for the first time, he says. That is really tremendous. Thank you so much. It's great to hear from our regulars and also good to see people not being shy about getting in touch as well. Morning, Jonathan, he says. Thank you very much for all the information you were able to put out. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, well, Don, I just sit in front of a mic and waffle, really. Eh, there you go. Secrets of the trade revealed. I was wondering, says Don, if you have found that the voice control uses a lot of battery. Yeah, it does. And so you have to be a bit careful about how you use it. If you find yourself using voice control a lot, one thing you can do is assign one of the back tap functions to it if your iPhone supports that. That way you can just double tap, say, the back of the phone or single tap it to toggle voice control on and off. Because even if you tell voice control to go to sleep, it's still listening for the wake up command. So the mic's going to be on, it's going to be listening, and it is a bit of a battery drainer. And that's particularly an issue if you have one of the older phones or even one of the phones that is not one of the Max ones where the battery just goes on forever and ever. So some judicious use of the voice control is definitely in order, Don. Hello, this is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. I would like to revisit the voice control on the iPhone because I've come to the conclusion that Jonathan is right. After hearing his response to my commentary last week, I decided to try it again, this time with a different Bluetooth earpiece that has a much better microphone. And I have discovered that it seems to work better. I think the problem I was having before is that it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do, even though I was saying the right commands or thought I was saying the right commands. But now it works a lot better with this new earpiece. Now, there are some things I haven't been able to get it to do, and I think I may not be saying the right commands 
or I may not, I may have to enable such commands in the settings. And I will look at that when I have more time. Uh, for starters, in an email message, when I get a message from one of the blogs that I follow, it will not read the text of the message when I say voiceover read all. Uh, it will read the top of the message where it says, respond to this post by replying above this line, and then that's it. So I have to manually still get it to do that. In an email message, uh, when I try to tap, say, the like button on a blog post that I'm following and I'm reading an email, it will not do that either. Again, I may have to, there may be something I may have to enable in the settings in order to, to get that to work, and I will look at that later. But otherwise, it works pretty well. I think the key is to have a Bluetooth earpiece or earphones, or if you have the luxury of a headphone jack on your phone, you know, just a regular pair of earphones, then I think it'll it'll work better. So I change. I have back pedals, shifted gears, shifted into reverse, whatever you want to call it, as far as the voice control is concerned. Now, speaking of earphones, when this COVID business is passed, I will want to do a little traveling. And I like to be able to read a book on an airplane when I have a long flight. And I know now that it is possible to use Bluetooth on your iPhone on an airplane, even if you have airplane mode turned on. However, what if, God forbid, you are right in the middle of a dicey part of your book on, and you're on the airplane and you've got two more hours to go and the battery on your Bluetooth headset dies because maybe you forgot to charge it the night before and you don't have the luxury of a standard headphone jack on your iPhone. Well, what do you do? A friend told me about a jack that she got that she can plug a standard pair of headphones into, or she plugs the jack into the, into the lightning port on the iPhone and then plugs a standard pair of headphones into it. And I'm wondering if anyone else has had any experiences with such a jack. And my main concern with this, this is my phone, I have an SE 2020 and it now has a battery case which uses a lightning port that I use to charge the phone. And it covers up the lightning port on the actual phone so I can't access it. So if I were to plug such a jack into this lightning port on the battery case, would it still work? When I was a kid, Abby, I was always told that changing a mind was a woman's prerogative. It's probably a phrase that's gone out of fashion now. But that's good. I'm glad you are having some luck with voice control and certainly with any of those dictation products, be it Dragon or voice control or whatever, the quality of the microphone that you're using is really critical. I have used a lot of these little dongles that Apple sell, the lightning to 3.5 millimeter adapter ever since Apple took the headphone jack away. That's how we get audio from the iPhone into the mixer for recording podcasts here. And it's also how I used to connect my hearing aids before I got made for iPhone hearing aids. I have this direct audio input cable that connects to the hearing aids. And then at the other end, there's a 3.5 plug. And so it would plug into that little adapter. The one thing I would say is that they do eventually wear out. They are quite flimsy. 
And so if you subject yours to a little bit of rough and tumble as you travel around, you might want to have a spare one or two just in case because they do stop working eventually. And I have a little stock of them here. Isn't it ridiculous? They call this progress. We used to just be able to plug things into the headphone jack and now we have to buy an additional accessory and have several of them around in case they break. Progress? No. But regarding your battery case, yes, that's going to work fine. And that's because the battery case has something called lightning pass-through. And that means that it will simply detect the kind of accessory you're plugging in and you'll be good. And for all of the innovations that have been made with Bluetooth, many people still say for latency, ease of use, obviously that battery life issue that you highlighted, you can't beat good old wired headphones. So get that adapter. You can actually open the Apple Store app on your phone and order it really easily and they will ship it to you. And then you need never worry about running out of juice for your headphones during the juicy bits of your book. Good morning, Jonathan, says Petra. Well, good morning, Petra. Is there still no way, she says, for us to detect the lights that indicate how well-charged devices are? I have several Bluetooth speakers and wireless chargers that I would really like to be sure are fully charged when I need to use them. I did have some luck before Ira with TapTapC, Petra. TapTapC is an interesting little hybrid because it uses a combination of object recognition and crowdsourcing. For example, I have this big Kahuna 20,000 milliamp charger from Anchor, and I used that a lot when I was doing international travel, long flights on planes, and it was really important that it was fully charged. And it had a little screen which had kind of lights and bars and things. TapTapC would sometimes tell me what level that it was at. Now, of course, I just use Ira, and it's a free call, of course. I mean, if you just limit it to one five-minute call a day, you can use Ira for free for that. Failing that, Be My Eyes is available as well for the same thing. Jonathan, Gera here, Gerardo here from Mexico. Very, very good day to you, and congrats on your 100th episode of the Emotional Large Podcast. I've been with you all since maybe the blind side. And transition to you with the most and large, very, very enriching every episode as I tweeted just a little while ago today. Every episode, one comes out learning something new, no matter what it is, be technology, be blindness in general, always learning something new. And as you say, we have formed a very enriching and helping community of people over all this time several topics one the topic that you were bringing up about that not that many blind people use special orientation on their phones for the longest time i have found it very efficient to learn where apps and or icons are on the screen you just put the finger on the icon. Of course, I do use the, the split tap. So you put one finger on the icon and the other finger on you tap with. And it's very, very efficient to go around the phone, be on apps, as I mentioned before, or on the main screen. I use a point of reference, the home button. For those of you guys who have iPhones with home button still, the grill on the top where you uh, put the phone to the ear with the volume and the mute on the left 
and where you lock the phone on the right. Those are the main points of reference I use when exploring an app or the home screen. So it's a very efficient way. So it's as if you were learning a new building, a new house, the same, the same way with the phone. That's the beauty of touch screens that you really are, can get very efficient in navigating the phone. It's the same way that the sighted people use it with just put the finger on the icon and away it opens. Two, the second topic is I'm really appreciating the setup that you have on your phone in terms of turning off certain sounds. It feels weird, but it really makes voiceover feel a bit more robust. And also it, it allows one to take more advantage and to be more aware of the haptic touch on the phone. So thanks for, for the, I think on, I don't remember what episode it was, but you mentioned the, the setup that you had. And I tried it out since this morning and it's working very, very beautifully. So thanks for sharing. And for the person who asked the question. Thank you so much for the feedback and for the very positive comments about the podcast and for listening all this time. I do appreciate that. I'm such a rebel because not only have I turned some of those sounds off, I've also turned the haptic feedback off. I don't like it. So I turn it off. Good to have the choice, isn't it? Greg Austin is writing in and says, hello, Jonathan, following your excellent demonstration of moving apps I notice a setting called Direct Touch Apps in the Rotor Action Settings menu. Would you consider explaining what this is about, how and when to use it? I can't figure out what it's for. Sure, Greg, happy to do that for you. The Direct Touch setting is where you don't want VoiceOver to get in the way of an app. Now, I'll give you a few examples of where this might be the case. And actually, a developer who really knows what they're doing with VoiceOver can implement Direct Touch in certain areas of the screen. You see this in apps like FlickType, for example, the alternative keyboard. I think Blindfold Games makes use of direct touch as well. So the idea is, let's say that you download an app from the store and it's a virtual piano. So when you go into that app, you've got a piano keyboard on the screen and you can press multiple keys to make chords and all sorts of groovy things like that. The thing is, That's not going to play nice by default with voiceover because you'd have to double tap every key, which would make not only playing single melodies really difficult because you have to keep double tapping everything, but it also makes playing chords next to impossible. So you can turn the direct touch on, assuming the app is supporting it, of course, and then you would be able to use those keys, those piano keys, like everybody else. You can, of course, turn voiceover off with an app like that, And you probably won't be any worse off for doing it, but there will be times when you would want direct touch on so you could still get speech feedback. So it's probably not often you would need to use it, but that's what it's there for. Douglas Howard is writing in from Ontario, Canada. I'm not sure which bit of Ontario, but he says, I know over the past week they have done some updates to Facebook. I was wondering if you were aware or knew of a fix around whenever I am on Facebook's homepage, You cannot hit the back button or when you're on Facebook on your profile page and you try and click on statuses or comment on your Facebook, you cannot click on the option to edit them or change what you'd like. I was wondering if you knew a workaround or knew of the situation that's going on with Facebook. 
Bonnie has told me about this, that she's seen people expressing concern, and justifiably so. It sounds like a well-known bug. I very seldom look at Facebook. Every so often I go back and I try to be a good Facebook citizen because I know a lot of people are there, but I end up getting frustrated with the content on it and stop. So, yes, I understand it is there at the moment. Presumably Facebook is going to have to come out with an update to their app to fix it. I don't know if there's a workaround, Douglas. If anyone knows of one, please let us know. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news, and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hi, Jonathan and listeners. It's Tanya Harrison here. I totally agree with what Bryant said about innovation, and I think... The version we were talking about that they used for purposes of innovation was 12. And then 13 came out with major features. And then, of course, so did 14. My concern, I've been concerned about this for some years, that whilst Apple, of course, is bringing in a lot of capital because of all their services uh, that they've ventured out into, like Apple Music, Apple TV, um, Apple Fitness, all these other paid services... My concern for a long time has been, are they now allocating less funds to their accessibility team? Because it seems to me that things have gone down in terms of quality control over the past four years or so. And it seems to me that in that time, that's when they've been concentrating more on adding extra services. Now, with that, of course, there are advantages to staying in the Apple ecosystem if that's what you want to do, and I understand why some people do. As for quality control and making our dissatisfaction known, I think there is a much bigger problem that is societal in general. And I'll give you a brief example. Last week I was having an issue with my phone, how a certain caller was not able to get through to me. And, of course, the first thing I did was report it to to Spark, my phone provider. They did everything at their end and then said, well, it's Apple's problem, it's not our problem. Then the next morning I spent about four hours on the phone to Apple Accessibility. And it's so wonderful, they... they, they generally do a very good job of helping you troubleshoot and go through all your settings and we did all that and then it came back to well it is actually your phone provider's problem it turns out it was neither it was just it's it's one of these little mysteries because then I got other people to call me from the same hospital and they could it's just this one department of course it's the one I regularly have to go to that that never seems to be able to connect with me they their number doesn't even give me a chance to answer it or go or go let alone go to voicemail they just get a the person you're trying to reach cannot um call cannot be reached at this time so we've never got to the bottom of that mystery with all the troubleshooting however my concern is that when there were so many companies involved in your iPhone experience because the iPhone is made by Apple but then you Apple doesn't have a phone company so you're then with another provider and to me when there are so many different companies in the mix it's always 
as Douglas Adams would say, someone else's problem. So it gives many of the people you speak with at these companies a choice to fob it off because, oh, it's not our problem really, it's Sparks, you need to get onto them. And then the, the Spark person fobs it off because, no, it's actually Apple's problem because they made the phone. And then Apple says, no, it's Spark's problem because they're providing the service. <laughs> so I feel that where I say it's a societal problem, I feel that for some years there's been a, a, around the world, there's been a lot of blaming and shaming that's become acceptable in our cultures. And I feel, unfortunately, it's got a trickle-down effect where, you know, something happens, for example, COVID. Oh, well, it's, you know, I hate to say this because it's just so many people have heard it and I don't think blaming anyone gets us anywhere, but the original consensus was, oh, well, it's China's fault, you know, and um, it, it just happens with everything. It's like, okay, before people even try and solve an issue, oh, let's just see where the blame lies. And to me, it's trickled down. It's trickled down into our use of technology. Um, and just on a personal note, I feel at the moment that innovation for me is what soup is for you, Jonathan. It's a word that absolutely makes me want to scream because the more innovations we get, it seems the more bugs we get. You know, iOS giveth and iOS taketh away. So every time now when I hear about new and exciting features in upcoming technology, my instant thought now is, oh my God, what are we going to lose? Because there's always things that get messed up. It was a very interesting discussion between you and Bonnie on Clubhouse. It made me think, and I've often thought this, that I wish there was an audio dating site. And I don't mean things like Varel because they're, they're, they seem to be where blind people flock. And not all blind people specifically want to go out with a blind person. I'm happy with a blind person or a sighted person. But when you go on most dating sites, they're either quite inaccessible or because they're very um, picture-specific, um, many people don't write much on their profile, so you, you don't really come out knowing a lot about anyone. And years ago, um, we had these audio, audio phone lines where you could hear people's voices, and I, I wish now there was something similar, even if it was on the current sites, that you could go and, and maybe as well as photos and videos, it would be mandatory for someone even to leave a 30-second message. Oh, so many interesting topics coming out of that last bit there, Tanya. For those people who've used one of those online dating sites, did it work out for you? It's such an interesting question. I've never used one of those things. My interest is when or whether you disclose. Do you put it in the bio? Do you just display right up front? I'm totally blind or low vision or whatever my situation is? Because do you risk perhaps attracting people who want to take advantage? But then if you don't disclose and you organize some sort of meeting, do you turn up to that meeting and surprise the heck out of someone when they turn up and they find out that the date that they met on this website is blind? A little bit late because Valentine's Day is over now, but if you have found love through one of those services, or if you've dated people through one of them, it would be interesting to hear your story and how it worked out. I especially like happy ever after stories, but I suspect there are some 
who have other stories. And Tanya makes a good point. Audio is important to those of us who can glean so much from someone's voice. Voices can be very deceptive, though. And I've talked to people who think, oh, you must be so much less prejudiced because you can't see what people look like. But I think we do glean a lot, not just from the sound of someone's voice, but whether they speak properly, you know, have good grammar, whether they use bizarre inflections. Would you date someone that like said like, like, all the like time? I certainly like wouldn't if I were in the dating business. So I think maybe we are just as superficial overall, perhaps just in different ways. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on online dating experiences or what for you would constitute your optimal online dating experience, and if you've tried any of these sites, how accessible are they? Do they exclude blind people by being too visual? This is something I don't know anything about, but I'd like to learn from your experience. 864-60-MOSIN is my number. That is in the United States, 864-606-6736. Drop me an email, jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Hi, Jonathan. Today you have a lab animal on the show because I am participating in a corona vaccine trial. This is a standard double-blind controlled medicine trial. First question, what do you think of the word double-blind in this context? I don't mind it, but I assume you do mind it. So how should we call such a trial in the future? Anyway, that discussion aside, it means I got an injection either with the real experimental CureVac vaccine or a placebo. And a placebo, that's a fake medication which does nothing. So half the participants get the real experimental drug, half the participants get the placebo. Participants give blood samples and have to fill out a diary, etc. And they monitor you for two years to see whether or not you get infected with COVID-19. And if you get infected, how severe your symptoms will be. And then they compare the group that got the real vaccine to the group that got the placebo and then they can report the effectiveness of the CureVac vaccine, which you hear about in the media for other vaccines all the time these days. I read the call for participants and read that this study was taking place a short bus ride away from my house. So I had to consider whether or not I wanted to participate. And to be honest, my legal blindness played a role in that. You do think like, well, can I participate in that? Isn't it going to be complicated? But especially, don't I give them a lot of trouble with guiding me around, filling out forms? Aren't they going to just reject me because they need to be uh, extra vigilant when selecting participants, etc.? Of course, those thoughts are not entirely rational, but it is showing the impact of discrimination and of, of perceptions of people yes i had some other doubts i don't particularly enjoy needles in my body there are of course some risks involved whenever you participate in a medical study but yeah even though i rationally knew that there was no good reason not to participate i mean what's the trouble in showing me 
to the desk or helping me to fill out a small form. And if they provide the form in an accessible format, I will happily fill it out myself. I can fill out a diary, no problem. But nevertheless, it played a role. And, well, when I came to the location, people were very helpful and very understanding, etc. But then I came to the doctor and, sure enough, I got into trouble. The problem was I had to sign the informed consent form. And on that form you have to write down your name and the signature date. And I can't really write my full name or signature date. I have a signature, of course, but normally I either have someone else write down the name or date, or I ensure that it's done by computer. So the doctor called the trial manager and asked if he could write down my name and the date. But no, that was not possible. And in the end, the manager came up with the solution that I wrote it down the best way I could and that the doctor would include a declaration that the writing was not very perfect because the participant was partially sighted. At that point, I faced the dilemma. Do I stand my ground and insist that I don't have to write my name and the date and that I can just place my signature, and that that will be a perfectly valid legal agreement, which I think it would be, or do I just try to write it down? Well, I did the latter thing because I have a little side. I can write a bit. It was very intensive. Uh, It made me a bit tired and stressed. My blood pressure afterwards was a bit higher than expected, and, well... The whole thing is a bit stressful, but this was one of the things contributing uh, to it. But in the end, I just wrote it down because, yeah, it's sort of an employment situation. You get uh, uh, compensated for it. So if you say, oh, I refuse, then, well, maybe they just put you out. And also, I could reasonably do it. It wasn't that bad. And in fact, it went better than I had expected. So maybe it's also a lesson for me. Maybe I should just do some more training to write down my name and if I do it 10 or 20 times it will be easier for me to do and I will have a much smaller handwriting and well maybe it won't be so bad I just never do it because I don't have to but maybe that's also making me lazy and I should just do some training I know there are blind people writing things on whiteboards when they are giving lectures etc so maybe I should just learn more skills Anyway, I got the injection and the blood sample was taken and next month I have to come back for the second injection. Perhaps I'm protected against the coronavirus or perhaps I'm not. I need to fill out a diary in an app and then I need to indicate which symptoms I did or did not experience every day. And that app was quite accessible. I think they even paid some consideration to accessibility. So it was not perfect. I would have points for improvement, but I'm pretty sure they took it into consideration. Everything was at least labeled and workable. Finally, I should reiterate that the staff at the trial location were very friendly and helpful and understanding. 
They were definitely very curious about my disability. They asked a lot of questions like, oh, how does that work? Or how do you do this? And the doctor wanted to know everything about how I became blind. And yeah, but that's logical because he needed to understand my medical uh, history to assess whether or not I could participate. That's what they do with every uh, participant. And uh, advocacy is a large part of what I do every day, so I really don't mind being given a podium to explain people how things work. But what's important, they were very open and really tried to find ways to make things work, and we definitely managed. I think I will be uh, a successful participant. And I also felt they really appreciated my uh, participation. It's pretty hard for them to find suitable participants. This is not really for everybody and uh, well in the end it went quite smoothly so uh, I think it's a success story and well most importantly let's hope that this CureVac vaccine will be another successful vaccine that will be employed successfully later. Well, you're a brave man, Tim, but yes, there are a lot of vaccines in the works at the moment and that is a good thing if we can get more vaccines out there that will be effective. Since you asked me about the double blind thing, I've been thinking about it while listening to you, and I have mixed feelings about it, because double-blind could possibly be referring in this case to not seeing what you're being injected with, in which case I don't have a problem with it. If it's double-blind because they're using blind to mean you're ignorant of whether you have the vaccine or not, then I do have a problem with it, because I just have a fundamental problem with blind being used as a synonym for ignorance or stupid, as we have covered here. I also do think that there should be a little bit of leeway and understanding of the fact that some blind people may well be able to sign their name. And I think that's a a pretty essential skill for us to have, isn't it? Writing your signature on something. But I don't know that a lot of blind people would be able to write today's date. I don't think I could. I don't think I'm that good with print numbers that I could write today's date. I must confess, I could write my name out in full. But I don't think I'd get there with the dates. Um, just lack of exposure to print numbers, really. Interesting thought. But the medical profession are um, notoriously the worst. I, I've never felt as disempowered as when I've been in the care of medical professionals. It's the highly epic Ron Miller writing in, ah, an old colleague of mine, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, I hope all is well with you. I've enjoyed listening to your at-large podcasts, though I have only heard a few. What? Oh, well, I'll take what I can get, Ron. <laughs> Recently, he says, The sure headset mic I've been using since I first began participating in webinars broke. That reminds me. I remember when we started using the term webinars at Freedom Scientific, and sometimes I'd put that through a spell checker and it would come back with the correction wine bar. And I think if you had to make a choice between webinar and wine bar, what would you do? Anyway, sorry, Ron. He continues, I need to replace it, but the cost of the same headset appears to have almost doubled in the years since I purchased it. Would you mind giving me some recommendations for a replacement with excellent mic audio. I need one which includes an XLR jack so it may be used with my audio source. 
Great to hear from you, Ron, and keep up the awesome work there at Freedom Scientific with all the things that you are doing. And I don't have a specific recommendation for you, but I'm going to throw this one open and hope that someone might. The reason why I don't is that I don't typically wear headsets for that use case. I do sometimes wear headphones for monitoring or listening to music in a nice, high-quality way. But usually, if I'm doing webinars or just recording spoken word, I have my hearing aids connected directly to the mixer. So in that case, what's going into my XLR inputs is the microphone, the Heil PR40 that's on a boom stand. And of course, that could be one option, although I suspect that's a much more expensive option than the Shure headset you're looking at. Just a cursory look on Google and consulting some podcast sources I check seems to indicate that if you do want to go the XLR headset route, then Shure seems to be highly recommended. But if anybody has any recommendations, so we're looking for a headset, just to be clear, we're looking for a headset that has an XLR connector. XLR is a particular kind of plug, so we're not talking USB. And if you don't know what XLR is, you probably don't have it and you probably don't have the kind of gadget that Ron is looking for. So can you help Ron Miller out? Go! one 860 mosin Give us a call in the United States. That's one 606 You can attach an audio clip. That audio clip could be recorded with said XLR headset that you are recommending. That'd be good. Or you can write an email down. Send it into jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Greetings, Mosin at Large listeners. This is Stan Luttrell in Medford, Oregon. A little update for you and for those that are interested. In the last couple days, there has been an update to Studio Recorder. For those of you that use that program, you can feel free to download the update. And I think the update's interesting, although I've heard... Some people have had some issues, but there are always issues with any software update. And another thing I wanted to mention, you asked about whether people, what scan and read programs people used on their computers. Because, of course, we have so many options on our iPhones, but uh, I use... The uh, seeing AI option mostly on the iPhone, but when I work with Windows, I use a couple of different ones. Actually, I've used mo- many of them. I used to use Open Book, and then I changed and used Text Cloner Pro. I don't know, don't even know if it's still around from. Uh, Premier Assistive Technologies, and then, most recently, over the last several years, I've used DocuScan Plus from Serotech, and uh, I really love that program. I use that, and it does what I want it to do. I have several statements stored on there, so it, it does what I need it to do. Hello, Jonathan, and fellow listeners, it's Gary here. Uh, just a quick one. I am looking for an app that will clear the cache on my phone because there's a huge amount of clutter. Uh, if you take Facebook, for example, that, that works on the web, but yet uh, when you install the app, it's maybe just to say, for example, 200 megs or 100 megs. And in a few months, it's 400 megs in size. Now, I would like to find something to clear all that extra clutter. Somebody recommended 
uh, Magic Cleaner, but unfortunately that is not available in my app store. So um, if there's anything that anyone that can suggest, I would really appreciate it. It is time once again for another sparkly Bonnie Bulletin. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Hello. We didn't have you last week. On I know. Show. I was at the NFB of Massachusetts virtual convention. You were sleeping by then, actually. No, actually, I was still oh, awake. Oh, right I then. Think. Right. No, I was oh, there fine. for quite a while. I think fine. I was there till like 9 or 10, maybe. Well, that's, that's, that's yeah. very good news. We are also celebrating this cool new feature in the Uber Eats app. It's been around a few weeks now. And I presume it's available for everybody. I don't know whether they roll this out in certain markets or whether everybody has this. Probably. But quite often we have some of the kids here or something like that. And also, of course, when we order Uber Eats, Bonnie and I both want something. And in the past, what I'd do is I'd get my mantis out and I'd read the menu and mm-hmm. Bonnie would choose. And you know, it was quite a laborious process. Mm-hmm. But now on Uber Eats. They've got this really cool thing at the top of the screen, at least here in New Zealand, when you go in and you choose your restaurant and it says create shared order. And you go in there and you can share your invitation. You could even share it on Twitter and stuff like mm-hmm. that, which would be a bit dodgy. Imagine all the people coming in. Oh, gee, yeah. all the people ordering yeah. food from all over <laughs> the world. And- you, you can create spending limits and all that kind of thing. So – when people are in the same house as you, you can use AirDrop. You can also use text messaging, the usual share options, and send them a link, and it brings them into this shared order. And then when everybody's ready, you close the order and you order. So it's really efficient. We had quite a few people over a couple of weeks ago, and we were all ordering at once. Now, Henry, the wonder son-in-law, was here making big changes to the Mushroom PC, we now have the solid state drive. Whoa. And so we were ordering lunch. And people who listen to this show, even though I talk about hearing aids and hearing impairments, may not necessarily know the extent of it because I'm in my environment here. I've, I, I'm in sort of a custom made studio, everything equalized for my optimal hearing. But I do miss things out in the real world and. Everybody was chatting away and ordering their food. Making a lot of noise. And I, <laughs> and I said, okay, is everybody ready for me to place the order? And I thought everybody said yes, but apparently Bonnie did not. Um, and no one bothered to, like, reiterate that I had said no. Mm. Wrong. Yeah. So I closed the order hit the submit button, and off we were going. This big order from McDonald's. I I must add, I ordered a really cool low-carb version, which McDonald's does a good job of. And then the order was on its way, and then suddenly Bonnie says, what's happened to the order? And I said, well, we've ordered. And she was very irate, very irate she was, um, because she had missed out. She'd missed out on her order from the shared order thing. So we decided, well, the only way around this, really, you can't call the order back in Uber Eats. So the only way around it was for Bonnie to create her own order in her Uber Eats app. So we thought, well, ours is obviously going to get here a bit earlier. So we placed the order and we waited and quite quickly, actually, Uber Eats pinged and it said, Jeff is bringing your order. And it came and it was delicious. And 
Bonnie's order kept getting delayed and delayed. That's one of the most frustrating things yeah. about being an Uber Eats customer, isn't it? That you sometimes you just get into this groove where the estimated time gets Moving. later and later. And then sometimes it gets so late, they cancel the order yeah. altogether. And you think they're going to cancel it soon. They're going to cancel it soon. And then they cancel it. But anyway, Bonnie's was getting later and later. And then we were absolutely, we thought, what's this driver going to think? Because it got so late that Jeff, the same guy who delivered this mountain of McDonald's for everybody here, then was delivering Bonnie's McDonald's yeah. to the same address. And we had Henry greet him again. Yeah. So Henry went down. <laughs> but apparently he was just totally cool about that. Well, he was walking he, he, away. He, he was walking away. Yeah. He didn't sort of. And apparently he had a hearing impairment. He had hearing aids too. Yeah. Yeah. So now, whenever we use this really cool new feature, and I do recommend it if you are in a household where more than one of you is ordering Uber Eats, this is such a cool way to do it. But do be very careful that everybody has actually completed their order before you close it off. Yeah. Yeah. Or you will be in the dog box like me. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next day I didn't get, Whatever part of my order. They didn't send my order and I had to order again. Yes, you are the Uber Eats jinx. That's what you I are. Because the next day, yeah, you're right. We, was I, I was very careful, very yeah. careful. And then the one of the items in Bonnie's uh, part of the order did not get delivered. Yep. That yeah. was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It just goes to show. Can't beat cooking your own stuff. No. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Bye. 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 To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.